So our last words often give us good insight into the things that are most important to us. Many famous people over the, over the years have had some interesting or amusing last words, and I thought I'd share a few with them. Mo Berg, who was a baseball player, his last words were, how did the Mets do today? P.T. Barnum, on the other hand, asked, how are the receipts today at Madison Square Garden? Richard Mellon was the multimillionaire president of Alcoa, the aluminum company, and, and he and his brother Andrew had been involved in a game of tag for a little over 70 years. So on his deathbed, he, he called his brother over to announce, last tag. And he left Andrew to be stuck as it for the next four years of his life. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, right, wrote Sherlock Holmes. He died at age 71 in his garden, and he turned to his wife and said, you are wonderful. And he clutched his chest and died. It's a good way to go. Now, not everybody's last words are that interesting, but they do have a way of revealing our priorities, don't they? And that is why we should be very encouraged that some of Jesus' last words before he went to the garden to prepare himself for the trial and crucifixion ahead were about us. They were about you and me. That's pretty exciting to think about. As we remember the amazing final week of Jesus' earthly ministry, right? The one that that began with the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. What we see as we look at that week is that he used a lot of that time to prepare the disciples to be the church after his resurrection. It was a time of intense preparation and teaching and praying for them. And it all really culminated in John chapter 17, what is commonly called the high priestly prayer. It is this beautiful prayer for all of his disciples, both then and throughout the ages. And so we're going to look closely today at one little piece of it. It's near the end, and as I said, he's praying not only for the disciples, but for everyone who would believe over the centuries. Even as we are eagerly looking forward to the seventh sign, the great sign that's recorded in the Gospel of John, right? The the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which we will celebrate next Sunday. Jesus was already looking beyond that. He was looking into the era of the new covenant. He was looking into the era of the church. And so he wanted to make sure that the disciples were, were ready. Now, we're going to make that same pivot as a church after Easter. We are going to begin a new series that I'm calling The Adventures of the New Testament Church. We're going to walk through some things, some events from the book of Acts through Revelation, where we see the early church in action, and we, and we try to see what that means for us as a church in the 21st century, right here at the corners of Mariner and Clipper in Prince William County, Virginia. But that's looking forward, as Jesus was. But for today, we want to talk about his prayer, which is found in chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. He's praying, I do not ask for these only, meaning his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, 
that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Jesus is clearly praying not only for those disciples who were present that night, but for everyone who will believe in him through the word of those disciples, through their preaching and their writing. And so that includes each of us who follows Jesus, because directly or indirectly, we have all come to faith through the writing of those apostles. So he is praying for us. And that should be very encouraging. Even when we're in our darkest times or our lowest points, we should be encouraged that Jesus prays for us. But what does he pray for us? Is he praying for our protection and safety and health, which are the things we often pray for? Does he pray for our comfort or our wealth, as our culture sometimes tells us to pray for? Does he pray for our luxury or our status or our popularity? No, he does not. He prays that we would be one. He prays for Christian unity. And in this short prayer, we can see a lot about three aspects of Christian unity, specifically the nature of Christian unity, what it means for us to be one, the power for Christian unity, how we can possibly become one, and the purpose of Christian unity, why he is so passionately interested in that happening. Now, the first thing that is revealed in this prayer is the nature of Christian unity, what it actually means for us to be one, right? Because that can be, what does that mean, right? And specifically, he he really prays for two kinds of unity. And the first is at the beginning of verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. He is praying for God to help us be unified as a church. All believers, united as one, and what we might call the unity of the body. Now, I suspect many of us have in mind an image of what unity of the body, what being one in a church would look like. And and maybe it looks like warm greetings, you know, aisles choked with handshakes and hugs during the greeting time. Or maybe it looks like ministering together side by side, doing things in the church. Maybe it looks like Unanimous decisions at business meetings. We have this, this image of it, but I think that it actually goes quite a bit deeper than that because he is really describing something that is much richer. He prays that we would be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. He is praying for us to be united in exactly the same way that God the Father and Jesus the Son are united. Now, it is difficult 
to describe how that exactly works, how the three persons of the Trinity, God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit, are united. Theologians have worked on this for centuries, on the how, but that doesn't interest me nearly so much as the what. What does it look like? What does it mean that they are united? And the good news is the Bible explains that fairly well. We can see from the Bible that God the Father and Jesus the Son are distinct persons, and yet they are a united single God. Again, the how is mysterious to us. It is beyond our human understanding, but the what is laid out. Right? We clearly know they are distinct persons because they talk to each other, because they did creation together, creating the world. And yet Jesus himself is very clear. They are one, and God is a single unified being. There is only one God. We know also that they have distinct roles. Amongst other things, the Father sins and directs. The Son goes and submits. They glorify one another. They love each other eternally. They each had a hand in creation, and yet for all that, they are one. And somehow, this is exactly what Jesus wants for us. If we're going to be like the Father and the Son, then we too need to be distinct in our roles and identities, but nonetheless, a unified whole, one single body with Christ as our head. Now, we should note that carefully, right? Christian unity doesn't mean we have to all look alike or act alike or even think alike in certain areas. We're not being called to lose our distinctiveness as believers or as churches. So it is okay to have different churches a block apart, to have different sizes of churches, to have different music styles, uh, different worship times, different ways to structure the service, different ways to dress. Even, even I think, and this is something that offends a lot of Christians, but I think it's okay even to have different denominations as long as those differences are about peripheral matters of practice or interpretation. And yet, our church is to be united with other Bible-believing churches around the world and across the centuries by a core of belief in Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. And from that oneness, we are to use our distinct gifts and opportunities as one body, specifically so that the world may believe that God sent Jesus. Now today we're going to be celebrating in the second service a very beautiful expression of that unity in Operation Christmas Child. Right? And I think we've got a lot of people who are probably going to go to that service, so maybe if you're wondering why we're a little bit thin this morning, I think we're going to see a lot of people there. We, are, we will be celebrating the fact that Lake Ridge Baptist Church now has a, a long, I think 18 years, right, service as a relay center for this global ministry, a ministry that brings together about half a million volunteers around the world to, to prepare and pack and ship something like 11 million shoeboxes a year to children in over a hundred different countries. And why do they do it? So they can experience the love of God and know that God sent Jesus. 
And that is exactly what Jesus was praying for here, right? Because we see distinct roles, right? There are, there are people who assemble boxes. There are churches that organize packing events. There are churches that serve as relay centers. There are teams of believers who go to processing centers. And then at the other end, there are national team churches and groups. We're going to have the Peruvian national team at the second service, so I would encourage you to come back. It's going to be very cool. Right? But there are churches at that end who are receiving the boxes and, and distributing the boxes. There are churches that lead the discipleship for those children who are interested and able to participate. There are large churches and small churches and wealthy churches and poor churches and urban churches and rural churches and suburban churches like ours, all involved. Churches of all denominations and worship styles. And yet for all that, we are a unified whole. There is the church, Christ's universal church. One body with one head, Jesus Christ. And that oneness, that single body, is what makes Operation Christmas Child possible. And it's all so that children around the world would know that God sent Jesus to die so that their sins could be forgiven. That's an example of unity in the body. That's what Jesus was praying for that we would be one in the same way that he and the Father are one. However, as Jesus prays, he also shows us a second aspect of unity, that he is also praying for us. Because he prays that they also may be in us. Right? Mark talked about this a little bit. Right? In verse 23, he's describing this as I, Jesus, in them, and you and me. So the second kind of unity is unity with Christ, oneness with our Lord. We're not just united as a single body of believers, but we are individually and collectively united with Jesus Christ because he is in us and he is over us. The Bible teaches us that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, when we make that confession and turn away from our sins and worship Him as Lord, that we are a new creation in Christ and that in some mysterious way, Christ lives in our hearts. And then, just as we are individually united with Christ through the, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, We are collectively united with Christ because Paul says he is the head of the church. And that is really what Jesus is praying for. He's praying for this thing that is just so amazing and worth celebrating, that that the one who is present at creation, the one through whom everything was made, lives in our hearts and is the head of our church the head of Lake Ridge Baptist Church, the head of the universal church of Christ. Now, how are these two types of unity even remotely possible? Right? How can we have unity in the body or unity with Christ? Because, let's face it, we're pretty terrible at unity. Right? We are 
very naturally poor at it individually. We're perhaps unusually poor at it in America because we have this individualistic culture that most of the time I love and celebrate, but it's maybe a little bit challenging in a church environment, in a collective environment. Right? We're, we're poor at it individually. We, we tend to stink at it as a church, and, and we're really bad at it as the greater collective body of Christ because we just love to pick and find faults and do our own thing And we just can't seem to help ourselves. We undermine unity naturally. So clearly we need some kind of power to create this unity. Christ is praying for it to happen to us. We can't do it on our own. There has to be a power, because doing it on our own is impossible. And that's where Jesus' prayer reveals the second aspect of Christian unity. The power for Christian unity the power that can really drive genuine oneness. As I noted, historically, we do a poor job at it, both individually and collectively. It's just in our nature. And it is because this church, like every church, is full of people like me, who are full of residual sin in our hearts, a desire and a compulsion to sin, to have our own way. There are no perfect people in the world, and so there are no perfect people in churches. I always feel bad when people are surprised to learn that. As hard as we try to be good people, we still sometimes have selfish motives. We still sometimes are self-centered, right? We don't want to admit it, but it's sadly true. That notion that we should do it ourselves, that we can do it ourselves, that we're going to do it our way, that we're going to do our priorities, I mean, that is, I think, mankind's most fundamental sin. We're born with it. It's the battle cry of the toddler, right? I do it myself. It is the sin of Adam and Eve, right? How many times... Have we each thought of this church as our church, right? That Lake Ridge Baptist Church is my church. And, and hopefully, in every case, that's the good sense of that phrase, right? That it's an identification, that this is the body of believers with which I identify, with which I grow in Christ, with which I serve the kingdom. That is the good way. We want to encourage that, right? That sort of identification. If there are any here who are not yet heart and have that sense, we will encourage that at the end of each service. But there can be a bad sense of that too, can't there? A sense where we sometimes are really saying, Lake Ridge Baptist Church is the church which is mine, the church that needs to do things the way I think they ought to be done. Now, it can be hard for us to admit that that possessive sense has replaced the sense of identity, right? We're, we're pretty good at covering it and explaining our, our good reasons for, for really trying to defend the church, and often they are good reasons. And so it's very challenging for us to recognize that we've made this subtle shift from identification to possession. But when we start to go down that road, when we start thinking in terms of ownership, that's when the unity starts to break down because we no longer permit Christ to be the head of our church. And we lose interest in being united with other believers in the same room and we we lose interest in being united with believers around the world. 
So how can there be any hope for unity when we are so flawed in so many ways? How can we have a shining example of the unity of the body like Operation Christmas Child? How is this possible? How can we hope in a month and a half to come together as a group of believers and as a a community of churches to possibly pack five million meals and feed my starving children? Well, the answer is in verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. You see, Jesus has gifted us specifically so that we could be united as a body. Right? His work and his glory make that oneness possible. They make Christianity possible. He gave us his example and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, his complete revelation and his finished work on the cross. These are his glory which he has given to us. It is the power that makes unity possible. It is the only hope of unity. We have to rely on that. Likewise, unity with Christ is only possible once we've come to believe fully in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. It's only at that moment when we put our faith in Jesus as our Lord and Savior that he enters into our hearts and brings with him the Holy Spirit, the one who, who seals us and guarantees us and makes sure that our inheritance in heaven is always secure and can never be taken away. See, we can never ever do enough good deeds to earn our way to heaven. And we can never work hard enough to be united with a perfect and holy Son of God. But He makes it possible just by accepting that in faith. He makes it possible not because we work hard or because we earn it, but because he is generous and loving. And all we have to do is call on Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, as our Lord and Savior, and confess our sins. And then he fills our heart, and we are united with him, even when we don't feel like it, right? Even those days where we feel really distant, it does not change that we are united with Christ. Now, having taken a look at that, I look at the nature of Christian unity, what it is, right, and, and the power for Christian unity, the gifting of God's glory to us, the question becomes, why is this so important? I mean, Jesus is praying about this literally hours away from his suffering and death. How can this be so important to him? Why does he care so much that we do this? And the answer is simple. It's reaching the world. It's right there in the passage in in sort of two distinct ways, just as there were two distinct aspects of unity. And the first is described in verse 21, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. In other words, we are to be unified in the body to demonstrate to the world that God sent Jesus. Now remember in John, when Jesus speaks of the world, he is speaking of the lost. He is not speaking of the church most of the time. 
So Jesus wants the world, he wants the lost to know that he is from God. Because that's the first step towards the understanding and belief that ultimately leads to eternal life. I think we can see the need for this in our society, perhaps more than in ancient society, because many of the lost in America will gladly admit, whether they believe it or not, but they'll say it to pacify you, that Jesus was a great teacher, that he was a moral man, he was a loving person. And again, I don't know whether they genuinely believe that or they're just trying to get you to go away. But the thing is, even if they believe that, they're still lost because they do not believe who he is and they do not believe that God sent him. See, respect for Jesus is not sufficient to bring a sinful person, and I mean every person because we are all sinful people, into the presence of God. It was not respect for Jesus that got us to the point where we are sealed and guaranteed and assured in our eternal situation or where we are unified with Christ. Genuine belief is required for eternal life, and Jesus is crystal clear about that. Our unity as a church, both an individual church here at this corner and the greater church of Christ throughout the world, is a powerful testimony to Christ's divinity and mission. When we, as a universal body of believers, are functioning effectively as the hands and feet of Jesus Christ, then tremendous things happen for the kingdom of God. The world changes. We can see it 20 centuries ago when the decadent and depraved Greco-Roman world was changed utterly by the gospel. We see it today as millions of young lives are touched with the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ through things like Operation Christmas Child. Right? When people witness thousands and thousands of churches and volunteers coming together and, and collecting and praying over and shipping and distributing these gifts that include the saving message of Jesus Christ, it is tremendously impactful because they see that something is happening that is beyond the capability of ordinary people. They see that this is something done through the power of the God who sent Jesus. Now, all this talk of unity, I will reiterate once again, does not mean that there should not be variety in our churches or our worship services, that we can't sometimes disagree with other believers over things. I would say quite the contrary. We should celebrate that because that's how people who are all and each and every one of us uniquely made by a very creative God who has made him in his image, and his image is just infinitely interesting, and so we, made in that way, are in an infinite variety. Right? That's how we can all find our place in the body, by having lots of choices of solid Bible-believing churches. But it does mean that as a local church, and as, as one amongst the worldwide body of Christ, that we need to unite and strive to see the best in others, and to seek our commonalities and celebrate those rather than exaggerating our differences. We need to focus hard on demonstrating this unity that is needed to reach the loss before we worry about fixing the saved. 
we are never being called to compromise the core of our faith. I want to make sure that's clear. But our disunity on secondary issues, whether it's battling over worship styles or clothing or facial hairs or uh, tattoos or piercings or worship times or, or peripheral matters of practice or interpretation, that dishonors Christ. It hinders our witness. That's true both in our local church and as the greater body of Christ. We cannot afford as Christians to be selfish about my church or my kind of church. We need to recognize that there is only Christ's church or else we're out of compliance with Christ's church. So the question we need to always ask before we get into a dispute, a disagreement, or condemnation of another believer, whether they're across the aisle or down the street, is whether or not this is important enough to the glory of God to risk disobeying the will of Christ. When we understand the critical importance of unity, when we realize that it is a vivid and powerful testimony to Christ having been sent by God, then we realize that the stakes are just much too high for this simply to be about me and my comfort and my preferences. Right? This is a matter of eternal life and spiritual death for the world. Now, the second purpose of our unity is found in verse 23, also related to reaching the world, reaching the lost. It is, so the world may know that you loved them even as you loved me. See, our unity testifies that God loves us exactly the same way he loves Jesus. Now, I want to just pause a moment and let that sink in. God loves you just as much as he loves Jesus. Just as much as he loves the perfect and eternal and holy Son of God. That's pretty awesome. It's pretty encouraging. Jesus said it right there. Enjoying this and celebrating this and testifying about our unity with Christ gives a very powerful witness to God's love for us. But it comes with a lot of responsibility because if we are unloving, right? if we are spiteful, if we are hate-filled, if we're warring either within ourselves or, or with a church down the street, a Bible-believing church down the street, then we are hiding God's love. We are against his will. This beautiful prayer of Jesus makes it clear that Christ wants us to be unified, which should be tremendous encouragement when we are in times of strife and struggle, when we lack unity, because God's will is that that would not be a permanent condition. His will is that we would be unified. Right? That he prayed for us to be unified to as one, and that we would be unified with him. That we'd be unified as Lake Ridge Baptist Church, and that we would be unified with Christ-following churches around the world and across 2,000 years. I think we should be further encouraged that he has equipped us to be unified through the gift of his glory and his Holy Spirit, despite our own personal failings in this area. But we should also be challenged, and I would even say trembling a bit, 
trembling a bit. Because this unity is not for our peace or our comfort or our enjoyment. It has a purpose. It is not to make our lives easy as ministers or deacons or ministry heads or Sunday school teachers. It is a trust and a responsibility that has been given to us by the Lord so that we can be a powerful witness to the love of God and the mission of Jesus Christ. If we choose to be divisive, if we choose to focus too much on owning and directing our church or rejecting like-minded churches over petty differences... That's not just sowing discord. It is directly damaging the witness of the church. It is slowing the advancement of the kingdom of God. And so I would urge each of us to take time this week. I'll be in the car all afternoon, so I'll try and do mine then. To really examine ourselves, to examine our hearts, to examine our words, to examine our attitudes towards other believers, right? and other faithful churches, and if what we find is not good, if what we find does not promote unity in the body or unity with Christ, then I would urge us each to individually repent of it, to confess it, to turn away from it, and know that God is faithful to forgive. Please pray with me. Father God, we are blown away that in the final hours before tremendous suffering and death, terrible death, that your son Jesus Christ was thinking about us, was praying for us. And that's just tremendously comforting. But, but we are also challenged, right? We are thrilled that we have his will to be unified. We have his power to be unified. But we stand trembling before you with this responsibility to be unified so that the world would know him, would know your love for us. Lord, help us to glorify you in all that we say and do individually and as a, as a church and as part of Christ's church throughout the world. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.